welcome to the Bullcast Podcast. I'm Katie Pickler, and with me is Court Winsett. Good morning, Katie. Cameron Spin. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest today. Very, very special. I mean, we talk about him a Guys, ton. Guys, he's not that special. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we talk about him all the time. He actually has his own little media outlet, but uh, you may know him from Bull Talk. You may know him from Bull TV. You may know him from... All, of, all ta- of the bull? All the bulls. All of us talking about him, but we have David Pickler on the podcast today. I feel like I've arrived. <laughs> it only took three years. Three long <laughs> years. Well, we had to make sure like we were ready. Uh-huh. Because it's like you can't bring a good guest on early in a production of a, a show or anything like that. You've got to make sure like you've got an audience built up. You've gone through many other guests. And so finally it's like, okay, we brought the big dog in. We are ready. We are three. We're in our toddler years. And we're just, we're ready to go. Well, you have no idea. How many times I've been walking around that lake, listening to this broadcast and thinking, why am I not good enough? (laughs) I could add something to this. I'm not one of the cool kids. No, I'm not like Katie or Cord or Cam. They're the cool kids. I'm just the old dude, you know, walking around the lake, listening to the, this podcast so I can approve it, so I can go out, so everyone can hear it. Yeah, we actually have a, a text thread that's called the Cool Kids Club. And guess what? You're not on it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just for those listening who may not have heard any of our other episodes, David has Bull Talk. David is my dad. Um, he has his Bull Talk. He has a TV show. He has a lot of ways that he reaches out to our clients you know, the community. And we kind of had kept it separate because it was more of like, this was our voice over here. We were doing pop culture. We're trying to take complicated subjects and kind of make it more fun. And not that you weren't making it more fun. It's just, you were much more like, you know, your stuff and we know our stuff too, but you know, so many of the details that you can really just like blow people's mind with the really complicated things that we're scared to touch. And so there is a topic that is buzzing around a ton. And Wait a second, Katie. What you just said was code word for boring. No, that's not at all what I said at all. I think it's a perfect blend because depending on what level you are and what knowledge you want to find out about, you can hear it from us. You can hear it from you. And we've done a lot of topics where we may do like a highlight version. And then it's like, if you're more interested, then go to your whole cryptocurrency um, presentation or go to this, go to that. And in fact, this one, we've been talking about the dollar and I know we've talked about like the cashless society and there's a lot of things right now that with AI, with the Fed talking about having this, you know, different currency out there, everyone's saying, oh, well, the dollar's dead. And crypto, I mean, mean, crypto is a big thing too. Yeah. And so you did a letter, you've done a presentation about death of the dollar and we were all talking like, you know, we, we really want to do this. This is a very complicated subject. We want to talk about it. But we, ladies and gentlemen, know ourselves and know that we've got to have somebody who can really speak on this subject and really give you the best up-to-date information about it. And so uh, that's that's why we have you on here. You, you've you made it. And then when there's another <laughs> super complicated topic. Congratulations. That, <laughs> when there's another super complicated topic that we feel like we cannot do justice by it, then we'll pull you in. So it's really. It'll be probably three years. <laughs> I mean, probably so. I'm really disappointed, though, guys. I came in here and uh, I've been so excited to come finally come into this control room, this amazing studio. But I thought that right in the middle of this desk, there would be a bright red shining light that says jargon violation. We have not had a jargon violation in what, two, two and a half years? Yeah. No. It's been a while. Well, maybe you haven't called, we haven't <laughs> we called haven't a jargon called it, yeah. violation. And see, I thought he was going to say a giant vat of whiskey. Yeah. Like <laughs> bottle of whiskey in the middle of the table or something no, like that. We, and we that there, it's probably. not there either. But <laughs> Before we get into really the subject about the death of the dollar, we're going to have a little fun because that's what we like to start with. And, um, you know, this is a conversation about King Dollar and its possible demise as the world's reserve currency. So we're going to do some Hamilton trivia because when you're thinking about money, let's talk about Hamilton. There's a better connection than just like, oh, it's Hamilton. Hamilton is on the $10 bill. He's one of the only non-presidents, and who can name the other one? David, you don't count. Who, who can name the other non-president that is on a 
Benjamin Franklin. There you go. Mm-hmm. There's only two non-presidents on our currency notes, and one of them is Hamilton, and the other one has been Franklin. And so we're going to talk about Hamilton today, because why? Because Court likes Hamilton. <laughs> yes, if you go back to the beginning, I think season one, then you just talked about Hamilton all, all the, the time. time I was, was obsessed. It was COVID time, and he, yeah. you just sang Hamilton all the time. He yep. is that $10 founding father without a father. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, quick rules for trivia. Katie will read the questions. She has the answers. And she's going to grill the guys. We do not have the answers. Okay, which two characters were played by the same actor? King George III and Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr and Lafayette. And then we've got John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton or Eliza Hamilton and Angelica. I think we should go around Robin. So like one person gets this question. Ooh, only one person gets to answer this question and then you will move to the next person around Robin. That's right. Okay, so who do we start with? David's up. David's up, okay. Well, you know what? I think it'd be kind of hard for Aaron Burr and Lafayette to be played by the same actor because they were on the stage at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh, and Liza Hamilton and Angelica Schuyler were on stage at the same time. And uh, King George III, we know, uh, was rarely on with anyone else. There was a a scene later in the play. But I'm going to go with John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton. Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. Bang, bang, boom, baby. (laughs) I'm retiring. Yes. (laughs) Court, you're next. What was Eliza's proudest achievement? Being a mom, raising funds for the Washington Monument, establishing the first private orphanage of New York City, or being able to have more time. Establishing the first private orphanage of New York City. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. 100%. <laughs> okay, Cam, you're up. Oh, boy. In the song, Stay Alive, who sings the line, Washington cannot be left alone to his devices, indecisive from crisis to crisis? Washington cannot be left alone to his design. <laughs> now, it's, it's going to be kind of a guess, but I can rule out Alexander Hamilton because he was uh, a big advocate for Washington. Uh, I don't know who Charles Lee is. Forgive me. I'm going to go with John Adams. It was Charles Lee. It was Charles Lee. So who's Charles Lee? Who's Charles Lee? Charles Lee was a general. General. Oh, uh, oh yes. Charles Lee was uh, a general who was regularly conspiring against George Washington. Yeah. So I'm failing right now. You failed. You you chose poorly. Poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Back to David. Which one of these is not of the 10 dual commandments. Mm. Number three, have your seconds meet face to face. Number six, leave a note for your next of kin. Number seven, confess your sins. Number two, if they don't, grab your doctor. Hmm, I've got to admit, this one I'm struggling with. I, I seem to remember, have your seconds meet face to face. I think I remember leaving a note for your next of kin. I'm guessing between confess your sins and if they don't, grab your doctor. I'm going to go with if they don't, grab your doctor. That's correct. Mm. Wow. Okay, Court, by what age was Hamilton placed in charge of a trading charter? 14, 12, 15, or 17? 14. That is correct. Okie dokie, Cam. I'm about Cam. to embarrass myself. <laughs> Cam, can you redeem yourself? No. How many songs are there in Hamilton in total? 44, 56, 32, or 46? How do we define song? Yeah, this is actually a tough question. If I'm being honest, Cam, I would not want to be you right now. I'm going to take a wild guess. I don't care. Okay. We're going 32. That is incorrect. (sighs) You chose four. I'm going to go 46. 46 is correct. Can I then avoid the next question? (laughs) (laughs) No, you cannot. (laughs) What is the longest song in Hamilton? Nonstop, My Shot, Satisfied, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. Well, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story is obviously the last song. And I believe My Shot is one of the first songs. I'm going to go with uh, Nonstop. That is correct. Wow, man. <laughs> okay, finish the lyric. Oh, of course you would get to finish the lyric one. I stop wasting my time on tears. I live another blank years. I think it's 60. Oh, it is 50. Uh, I knew that one. <laughs> Are you ready, Kim? Sure. <laughs> Feeling a little less confident in the voice. What song do Aaron Burr, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison all sing together in anger and jealousy? We know Cabinet Battle Number Two, Washington on Your Side, or the Room Where It Happens. Ooh, I am going to go with Cabinet Battle Number Two. <laughs> 
That's a no. Why don't we try another one? <laughs> try again. Now it's just out of pity. Okay, we're going to go with the room where it happened. No. 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 I, don't, I don't know. Why don't we try again? Watch, watch me get the third one wrong. I'm going to go with Washington on your side. Yay. Yeah. It must be nice. It must be nice. It must oh, be nice. To have Washington right. on yours. Okay. Who did Washington tell to shut the door on his way out during Right Hand Man? Boom. Was it Hamilton, Burr, <laughs> Lee, or Washington? Aaron Burr. Yes, sir. Yep. How old was Philip Hamilton turning during Take a Break? Mm. 19, 13, 11, or 9? Uh, I'm going to say 9. Correct. Yeah. Nine. Who starts out singing in It's Quiet Uptown? I got this. Peggy, Eliza, Angelica, or Aaron? Angelica. Want to try that one again? <laughs> you like my confidence? <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> nice. I got nice. it. How many essays did Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay write in total? 85, 25, 105, or 65? Okay, I want to put in a caveat here. It is not fair to ask David Pickler the question, how many Federalist Papers are there? <laughs> that, it's, it's just not fair. He knows this. Now the pressure's on. I think it's 85. 85. Hamilton wrote the other 51. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe since there's only one more question, then I am undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> we'll tally the score at the end. Where did Burr and Hamilton duel? Hoboken, Edgewater, Gutenberg, or Weehawken? Hmm. Honestly, I'm not sure. I know it was in New Jersey because everything happens in Jersey. Um, but I don't know where it was in Jersey. Uh, I'm going to say Edgewater. Oh. So close. What is it? Weehawken. That's correct. Wow. At dawn. The final score, Cameron, one point. Court, three. David, five. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that is why we have David on the podcast to talk about the death of the dollar. Mm. So when someone comes to you and says, the dollar's dead, it's going away. What do you say? The rumor to the dollar's death may be greatly exaggerated. The reality is that I'm going to paraphrase a little bit the article that I wrote and the letter that I wrote, because I, I do think it tells a bit of a story. And, uh, and we, we really, we think about the concept of money. And I know that, that uh, you guys did an episode on the idea of money and the evolution of money over time and mm -hmm. the concept of currency and things of that nature. And when we think about money at the most basic level, it is a currency, a means of executing a transaction. It is a some sort of a store of value that, you know, back in the older days, you know, I might trade you my goat for your cow. You know, I might exchange these beautiful polished pebbles for, you know, corn that you might make. And throughout history, we began to formalize the process of creating these currencies, these stores of value, where there was some form of measure, uh, some sort of standardization. And, uh, and it really allowed society and societies to be created. It really helped organize, and people no longer had to farm everything that they ate. They had to be completely reliant on everything they could do to survive. And people began to be able to move into communities, and they could actually create things that was more than what they needed to survive. So if you were a farmer growing corn, and you were able to grow more corn than you needed, then you could sell the excess corn to someone else in exchange for something else that they had made more of than they needed. And that was the concept of trade. And you could have areas within communities where people would gather to bring their goods. And over time, people began to specialize. You know, some people became very, very good at creating things made out of metal. For example, you know, Joe in the next community could build a really amazing sword. Or Sam down the road could build wonderful bows and arrows. Or Janice down the road was an amazing baker. And people, you know, began this process of exchange. And it really was the foundation of society. Whether you go back to the Incans, it was all about trade. And then over time, people began to no longer feel the need to carry a goat or, you know, a bushel of corn around. And so they began to say, all right, well, I'm willing to exchange that bushel of corn for this piece of metal. And this piece of metal that, you know, that all of a sudden we're beginning to assign a value to. And over time, we began to establish and standardize these values. And it's really the basis of money. I remember when I was in eighth grade, that I was in a, a class and I had a teacher uh, pull out a dollar bill out of his uh, wallet. 
And he said, what is this? And of course, we were all big, bright students. <laughs> we said, well, that's a dollar bill. And he said, really? What really is it? And you can't even say, you know, that it's paper. It's not really paper. It's paper and cotton, whatever. And he said, well, what's it worth? We said, it's worth a dollar. And he said, well, not really. It's worth what I can exchange it for. Now, we've come to standardize that idea of that paper bill, that dollar or five or thank you, Mr. Hamilton, 10. <laughs> that was the unit of exchange. But that's not where it started. Throughout history, we have seen great societies rise and fall. Probably after the Incans, the next great society, uh, we think of the Greek society. You think of the Romans. And they, they, they rose and they fell. And they all had their own form of currency. And then you, you went into uh, the Ottoman Empire. And for 600 years, the United Kingdom was the most powerful economy on the planet. And each of these had their own currency. And, and when we think about that term currency, it really is nothing more than a unit of exchange. Katie, you, you may not remember this, but about 20 years ago, your, your brother Chris and I were working at the Boy Scout National Jamboree. And we were both working in the area of where they would have major events, major concerts. We had the President of the United States come. And we were in charge of where people sat. And, you know, and there were 30,000 scouts there. And we could arrange where you could sit very close to the stage or way back. <laughs> that was our currency. Mm -hmm. And so... So everybody's it, giving you patches. and <laughs> That's right. And, and, and see, in scouting, they've, all, they've got this concept of uh, patches. You go to Jamboree, and everybody's designed their own patch. Uh, I know Cincinnati, they had all around the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, there was in Southern California, they had patches all around the uh, Marvel characters. The scouts would trade those. Those were all currencies. So I'm saying all that to talk about, when we talk about money, we talk about the death of the dollar. What really it all goes back to is this concept of currency and the concept of trade. Because when we think of the death of the dollar, what they're really saying here is what is going to be the dominant currency as we go forward that's going to allow one economy or the other to really effectively rule the world. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, up until World War II and many hundreds of years before that, the predominant currency in the world was the British pound. You may have heard the term sound as a pound, but at the end of World War II, there became a new dominant economy, and it was the United States of America. And so economies can rise and fall. So it is not predetermined that the dollar will always be what we call the reserve currency, because what that reserve currency is, it, it's really dependent on a lot of things. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But as we've seen the growth, the, the rise, if you would, of America as, the, as really the preeminent economy in the world over the past 75 years, then it's allowed our currency, our dollar, to become the dominant means of trade for the entire world. The, the most obvious reason that this is coming up as a topic at all is because there are countries out there that would prefer that their currency be the dominant currency. There's specifically, uh, obviously, the, the first one that comes to mind is China. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, n nobody's looking to take some some Russian rubles on or whatever the heck they even have anymore. <laughs> They're probably dealing more in cow turds nowadays. But uh, at least the Chinese yuan. At least it's not bull turd. Um, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> there's that. Cow patty. Cal Patty, thank you. Uh, so, so there are some countries out there that would legitimately like to displace the dollar. And then obviously, since World War II, probably the, David, feel free to correct me violently if you want to, um, but probably <laughs> since World War II, the biggest uh, currency that has developed since that war was probably the euro. The euro is probably the currency that has the most legitimate threat to the dollar. Probably the singular most important event that led to the U.S. becoming the dominant currency was something that happened about 250 years ago. And I'm going to say this because it's very important we talk about the threat to the dollar. Because the single most important thing that's ever happened about, you know, what has really established the U.S. as the dominant currency was the writing of the United States Constitution. Because what the U.S. Constitution really did was that it put in place the rule of law, private property rights, you know, especially to things like inventors, to the concept of patents, mm -hmm. democracy, free elections. 
These things made America different, different from any other economy on the planet at the time. And that's why we talk about this experiment and representative democracy has been going on for nearly 250 years. And so when we think about the concept of reserve currency, and there's a number of things that you've got to have. And one of the reasons why when you think of Russia, and you think of China, and you think of, of Saudi Arabia, you know, who are probably trying to make the strongest claim to become a reserve currency, they simply don't work mm-hmm. because there is no concept of free and open markets. There is no concept of private property rights. There certainly is no concept of free and open markets, not to mention the fact of the, you know, the ability to be considered as the, the world's banker mm-hmm. and be willing to take on all the debts of the world. Because we can talk about the whole concept of trade and what it means to have a positive trade balance or a negative trade balance and what that really means. Because these things really are something that's fundamental to the dollar and why, quite frankly, anyone who says that the dollar is dying is not only uh, overstating what is probably a wrong thesis, but they're just blatantly wrong. Mm. (laughs) That's an interesting question and answer because one of the questions I wrote down to ask David, I think you answered it, uh, for years and years, our country has prided itself in being the greatest country in the world, our military, our economy, our resilience. Do you think America is still the greatest country in the world? If you put down your patriotism, whatever, just just put that aside. <laughs> Legitimately, are we the strongest when it comes to our, our dollar, our economy, our military? First of all, unquestionably, America is the strongest economy, the strongest nation, the strongest people on the earth. Uh, from an economic standpoint, and I, I joke about this with, with our clients all the time, And I say, we think about all the issues that we have, all the debt, all of the craziness with our Congress. Sometimes I kind of refer to them as our resident village idiots up there. (laughs) And and we talk about, you know, the the fact that we've been operating with the deficit for all but about four years of our entire existence. We've been in debt for almost every year of America's existence. Ladies and gentlemen, don't be like that. If most people ran their business anywhere close to the way the U.S. government did, then everyone would be bankrupt. (laughs) I mean, I always tell people that that America has the worst economy on the planet, except for everyone else. (laughs) Or you can say another way, that we are the cleanest dirty shirt in the closet. Because of the rule of law and the respect for the rule of law that we have, and even though we debate it, and the private property rights, and the free flow of capital, the fact that uh, that we have a treasury that is willing and able to continue to print money, to continue to issue debt, and that people all over the world will keep buying our debt. And they're buying our debt for one reason, because they know we'll pay it back. Mm. Even though we may be issuing more debt, we have never defaulted. So does that mean we have a good credit score? You know, we talk about it to our listeners, like your credit score is your most important thing because it's telling people like, hey, I, I'll pay my debt. You can loan me money. I'll pay my debt. So in a way. Well, what is a corporate credit score if not like a bond rating? Yeah. And well, we the reality is the U.S. has a bond rating. Yeah. I mean, our bond rating uh, by some measures is double A and some measures is still triple A. We have never defaulted. We've never missed an interest payment. And despite the fact that, I mean, we've, we, we certainly have seen the amount of debt has ballooned. Mm-hmm. You know, we have over $31 trillion of debt. We have more debt than the total value of our gross domestic product, our entire economy. But what's important is that we have the ability within our economy to meet the debt service, to be able to make those interest payments. But the other way and to answer your question, Cameron, is take a look at what happens when things go wrong. Think, take a look at what happens when there is a major global or geopolitical event and that there's a crisis. Where does the money go? They always say, follow the money. Think about any major event, wars, pestilence, four horsemen, whatever it happens to be. Then the money always rushes into the United States. And the other thing is that people are coming in, they're buying our bonds. But what else are they buying? They're buying Florida real estate. <laughs> they're buying our condos. Japanese even bought Pebble Beach. I mean, there is so much foreign investment. And for those of you who know, Pebble Beach is one of the greatest golf courses on the planet. <laughs> the United States is, because of our freedoms, because of the fact that we allow in crazy kind of debate and conversations we have in this country from a political standpoint, and, and even though we are, in many cases, as divided as we've ever been as, a, as an economy, 
And as a nation, we still are fundamentally strong. You think about when Richard Nixon had to resign from office. One of the first things that was said when Gerald Ford was sworn in, and for those of you who are a little younger, Richard Nixon was the president. I think all of us in here know that. <laughs> Hashtag Watergate. <laughs> Hashtag Watergate. And through efforts of many, many people, he eventually was forced to resign from office. And I remember that uh, Warren Berger was the Supreme Court Justice, the Chief Justice at the time. And moments after he had sworn in Gerald Ford, in a peaceful transition, Warren Berger was heard saying, it works. The Constitution works. And that is so cool. There were people who were concerned when Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Was there going to be a constitutional crisis? And despite the horrible things that happened on January 6th, and we can debate that ad nauseum, but on January 20th, 2021, at 12 noon, or by 12 noon, Donald Trump left the White House and Joe Biden was sworn in. That's why I say that the thing that separates America from every other country, or most every other country, especially when we're talking about this idea of being the, the world's currency, it's because of that Constitution. It's because of the rule of law. It's because of the fact that we can have peaceful transitions every four years. We can have effectively a revolution politically. I mean, they may take like, you know, the S keys out of all the keyboards or the, you know, they may play little pranks and stuff. But yeah, ultimately it is. It's a transition. That's right. It's peaceful. And, and, and that's why when you when you think about the whole concept of the death of the dollar, it all starts with having a stable currency, a stable government, a treasury that's willing to issue debt that people will buy and that will respect the rule of law, will respect private property, and uh, will have fair and free elections, and we'll have fair and open trade, open markets. Because at the end of the day, the reason why you have a reserve currency. What, what is a reserve currency? A reserve currency is basically the preferred unit, the preferred currency, the preferred money that you use when you're engaging in trade. Mm. So, for example, you know, every day, every year, we have companies in the United States that are manufacturing things. And some things are selling here in the U.S., some things they have the ability to sell in Europe or Asia or Africa or wherever. And so they ship those goods over there and people buy them. That is called an export. Then we also, we, we, we have people that, especially during the pandemic, they're sitting around, couldn't do anything. And they go to Amazon, to wherever, and they buy things. And some of it came from China. Some of it came from Europe, and, and so they buy that thing. Some of us know that as drunk shopping. And I, I, yeah. <laughs> so you think How's about that Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> so when we import goods, or when Costco brings them in for us to buy, then they're shipping us goods. We're sending them dollars. When we're exporting things, we're sending them goods, and they're sending us dollars. So the whole idea is that trade is done. The unit of measurement, the unit of currency is the king dollar, the good old buck. And so if we import more things, then we export. So therefore, we're sending more, you know, more dollars out than we're bringing dollars in. So if we have more imports than exports, it means that we're having a net outflow of cash. We're sending more money out because we're buying everybody else's stuff. And if you have more exports than imports... More exports than imports. It means you're, you're sending all your goods and things out there, and people are sending you lots of money. That's what they call a positive trade balance. So you're bringing in net more dollars. And so for many, many years, you know, we were sending out tons and tons and tons of our, of our stuff, automobiles, manufacturing products, whatever. Now, if on the other hand, you know, in America, we have an economy that is 70% controlled by the consumer, consumer spending, and we buy a lot of stuff. So therefore, we actually bring in, we import far more than we export. So when we import more than we export, then we have what they call a negative trade balance. And when we have a negative trade balance, when we actually are sent more dollars out than dollars coming in, then there's a balance. There's a, there's a deficit that's got to be bridged. I was going to say, that's what, that, when they talk about a trade deficit, that's what they're talking about, that's right? That's right. Yeah. So if we brought in an imports a billion dollars, and we sent out an exports half a billion dollars. We have a $500 million trade deficit. And so you've got to have a government that's willing to float the loan to float the dollars to cover that trade deficit because somebody's got to pay that bill. So if I go in there and I buy $10 worth of things, but I only got $5 in my pocket, I got to bridge the gap. I've got to come up with that extra $5. So when you have a trade deficit, then 
our government, our treasury has to back that negative trade. And so America has to become effectively the banker for the world. And they have to be willing to continue to issue debt to cover all the trade deficits for all the countries in the world. And so not only must you have a respect for the rule of law, must you, but you have respect for private property, must you have fair and open elections, must you have a stable economy. You've got to be willing to basically finance the world's debt. And those are all the reasons why all the people who talk about, well, the dollar is going to heck. Well, it may make interesting sound bites on television, but they're not really paying attention to the real world, the real economy about what's going on. Because where it stands right now, the dollar ain't going anywhere at least for our lifetime, but not necessarily forever. You were talking about trade, and I have a burning question. I need you to educate me. It may sound like a dumb question. When a tariff is put in place, is that on exports or imports and exports? Okay, that's a great question. Another economy that is strongly considered or is wanting to be considered as the reserve currency of the world is India. But India is not a great candidate because India is a, a democracy. They uh, do have a kind of a democracy. <laughs> well, you can debate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but India engages in what they call protectionism. And, uh, and what I mean by protectionism is that they're trying to protect their merchants, their people who are manufacturing th uh, things, from people importing cheap goods into their country. So let's say that uh, you have Ford Motor Company in your country, and they are, have the ability to produce cars at $10,000 a car. And then you've got, oh, I don't know, let's call it uh, Nissan. And Nissan can produce a very equivalent, maybe even better car, for $8,000. Then if I'm Joe Consumer, I say, hmm, two cars, you know, this one falls apart after three years. This one you can drive forever. This one's $10,000. This is $8,000. Now, obviously, we're talking about the real world because this is what happened in the 1970s. And so people started buying the $8,000 Nissan. Of course, back in those days, it was Dotson. called Datsun. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you want to ensure that Ford stays in business, then there's two ways you can do it. You can say, Ford, number one, produce better products at a lower price. Or we're saying, no, we're not going to go in that direction. We're simply going to raise the cost of the Nissan. And so... When the, it shows up at the dock, we're going to impose a $2,000 tariff per car. So now all of a sudden, that $8,000 Nissan is now a $10,000 Nissan. This is called protectionism. And this is what India is engaging in on a massive scale. And so a country that engages in massive amounts of protectionism is, again, not a great candidate to be the world's banker, the world's reserve currency. Now... There is great debate at all time about tariffs. Tariffs are almost exclusively, well, they are exclusively, imposed on imports. And so in many cases, we have a lot of our goods that we export to other countries that very well may be subject to tariffs by the countries that are receiving them. And so that has an impact. And so how a country chooses to protect their manufacturers you know, can be in the form of, a, of effectively a tax or a tariff. A tariff is nothing more than a tax. Now, another thing that happens is because of the fact that India has their own currency, Russia has their currency, China has their currency, the UK, you know, has have their currency, then there's something called currency exchange rates. Because from time to time, people are wanting to try to figure out, all right, so if I'm trading in dollars and you're going to pay me in euro, then is one euro equal to one dollar? Is one Chinese yuan equal to one dollar? And the reality is no. And so on any given day, a currency, the dollar could be seen as being strong or weak. So, for example, when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, then let's say, for example, over the past year, the Federal Reserve raised short-term interest rates from zero to five percent. So if someone came in the, and they wanted to invest in a U.S. dollar, if they wanted to buy a, a U.S. bond a year ago, they could have gotten less than 1%. Today, they can get 5%. So all of a sudden, it's more valuable for them to come and buy U.S. investments because they can earn a greater rate of return. Mm -hmm. So when the Fed raises interest rates, it increases the value of the dollar versus other currencies. When the Fed's cutting interest rates, in many cases, the dollar goes down. 
Another thing that can cause the, the dollar to go up or go down is things like inflation. You know, the more inflation you have an economy, the, the lower you can have a dollar because that devalues. And so all of these things work in concert. You know, when you think about protection, if you think about tariffs, you think about the exchange rates, because the more valuable the dollar is, then uh, if, for example, you were to fly over to London next week and the dollar is very strong versus the euro, that means you can buy more stuff. Mm-hmm. You can buy more stuff because your dollar is worth more. But here's the other thing it means. If I'm exporting my goods over to Europe, then if my dollar is stronger, then those consumers can buy less of my stuff. So, you know, the strong dollar is not always in the best interest of manufacturers. Manufacturers kind of like the dollar to be cheap Mm. because people can buy more of their stuff. And so all of these factors go into it when we think about the the strength of the dollar. Right now, the dollar has been extremely strong the past several years which is good for the dollars, but it's not necessarily great for people who export a lot of goods to other countries. It's great when you go traveling. I am enlightened. I, this is actually, fascinating. One of the things that this has brought up is, is a question that I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, part of the nightly news, part of the, the 5.30, 6 o'clock newscast every single night was the dollar versus the yen. Every single mm-hmm. night they would talk about the dollar versus the yen, and you don't you don't hear about that anymore. Why? Why is that? Where did the yen go? And is it just is it just because the dollar is so dominant now, or or did something else take the yen's place? When you talk about currency exchange and the dollar versus the yen, of course, the yen is obviously the currency of Japan. Japan, yeah. And uh, and so what happened in the 1980s? You saw the emergence of the Japanese economy. You saw significant demand for Japanese goods, and you saw the Japanese yen was skyrocketing in value. This is at a time that American manufacturing was in a malaise. Things were not good in the U.S., you know, economically, politically, manufacturing-wise, whatever. And so on a relative basis, the yen was phenomenal. Uh, on a relative basis, the yen was, uh, was doing far better than the dollar. And then the Japanese economy went into deflation. And a lot of people think, well, isn't deflation just the opposite of inflation? And the answer is yes. And so they say, well, isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't that be good, right. And the answer is no, Uh, because deflation is when prices start going down. But if prices start going down, that means that the revenue received by the companies goes down, which means that they have less money to to hire people. And therefore, they have to start laying off people, which means people have less money to spend to buy things, which means that there's less demand, it means cause prices to go down. If prices go down, it means there's less revenue for companies, which means they can't hire as many people. They start laying off even more people. It just blew my mind. It blew my mind mind when I I found out that there was actually, that, that the Fed's target inflation rate was not zero. Their target inflation rate is 2%. Correct. Because you want some inflation. That absolutely was mind-blowing to me. It it is. The illustration I was trying to kind of give verbally was like watching something go down a toilet. Mm -hmm. And and, and it can go to zero. The Japanese economy was in deflation for over 20 years. And you said, did the yen disappear? Well, almost, along with a lot of the wealth of Japan. And so when, when you're looking at this, yes, you want some inflation. Uh, you don't want zero inflation. You want, you know, uh, something around 2%. And from 1986 to 2021, in this country, we averaged about 2% inflation. And that is, is again, the considered to be the, the target. The Federal Reserve has what they call twin mandates, two things that really are their job. Number one is what they call price stability. In other words, keep inflation under control, and their target is 2%. And the other is full employment. In other words, low unemployment and their targets are in three and a half percent so the idea is because there's always people who are moving from one job to the other so there's you're not going to have full employment a hundred percent of people are always working anytime because you've got people in transition and so that's why what the fed has to do in terms of trying to balance those two key areas of keeping inflation under control preserving the value of the dollar and keeping that stable currency and then also having enough incentive and enough stimulus to keep the economy growing. You know, the thing that, that, that I, I would say kind of, you know, probably in a closing about the whole issue of the dollar and really where we are. And I, I made the comment earlier. I do not believe in our lifetime, and I'm talking about pretty much anyone who's listening right now, that the dollar ha- has a significant threat to lose reserve currency status, to be that go-to currency for the world. But the reality is, 
I can see that happening in the next generation or the generation after that. Because what has kept America strong is not our natural resources, which are abundant, but it's our human resources. It's our freedom. China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, they may have resources. Oh, yeah. In terms of landmass, I mean, if you just look at them, between the three of them, my goodness, they've got all of the resources. But these three countries, they may have resources, but they're not free. They are not free. And it's highly unlikely that any one of them would ever replace the dollar. But bad policies beget bad outcomes. And the king dollar will only stay king if the U.S. keeps its fiscal and monetary house in order. We've got to make good decisions. We've got to limit government spending. We've got to keep our tax rates low. And we need to ensure that we have policies with our Federal Reserve that have a more restrictive monetary approach. In other words, that we're not literally printing money every time that we see that there's an issue. If we do the right things, then we could have the dollar as the dominant economy, the dominant currency in this world for decades to come. But just like the Incans, just like the Romans, just like the Ottoman empires, just like the British empire, empires can rise and empires can fall. And remember this, in the history of the world, if you look at the story of these empires, in almost every situation, these great republics were not defeated by an enemy. They crumbled from within. Mm -hmm. They crumbled from within. Mm. And that's why it is so important that each of us understand the responsibility that we have. And quite frankly, what you do on this podcast of teaching people about how to be responsible and engage participants in our economy about giving them the tools necessary for them to be able to learn, you know, to be a part of what is, and I believe will be, the dominant economy on the planet. But good decisions start with good training, good knowledge, good discipline, and those can lead to great outcomes. So I kind of want to put this into some questions, and it's, I know a lot of these I ask are going to trigger almost like another whole podcast, but I'm going to challenge you to kind of like... Rapid fire. Rapid fire-ish answers, because these are questions that I've heard recently. I'm sure several people have heard around the dollar. You said printing money. Why are we printing money? Everything's going, you know, electronic. Well, that's a great comment, and I appreciate you calling me on it because you're totally right. 80% of all the transactions that happen in the world today, uh, certainly in the U.S., are digital. And uh, and the reality is that that shows that I am, yes, old. <laughs> And, uh, and and going back to time when, uh, yes, the Mint kept everybody busy, you and I have both been to Federal Reserves, you know, and uh, and we've seen, you know, all the dollar bills in there and, and what they do with them there. But the reality is the, the concept of, of, again, of printing money, obsolete, but the concept of creating currency, mm-hmm. of creating money, of creating the stores of value, that's real and that continues. I have a rapid fire question and it ties into that a little okay. bit. David, do you think cryptocurrency was a trend and is dead, or do you think it's here to stay? Cryptocurrency is, in my opinion, a part of what I am referring to as the fourth industrial revolution. Now, you want to talk about a whole other topic, and I would encourage y'all to consider this one. If you think about the uh, industrial revolution, the first one was the invention of the steam engine. Uh, The second one was, uh, and that happened in the 1800s. The second was the concept of the creation of, of electricity and using that in manufacturing and the mechanization of our country. It's the Henry Ford with the uh, the assembly line. Uh, the third industrial revolution happened again in the 1950s uh, with the creation of and the, and the utilization of computers and technology. And I believe that we are today at the very early stage of what I would call the fourth industrial revolution. And it really is a fusion of the physical uh, the artificial, the biological, as we're pulling together things such as artificial intelligence, things such as Web 3.0, the things such as blockchain, the things such as digital currency, all of these things that are happening right now. Cryptocurrency, to me, is a part of what I refer to as the decentralization of money in a situation whereby I believe cryptocurrency is ultimately what I refer to as an early adopter. Uh, it's something that I do not believe that in the form that we see it now, I don't see Bitcoin as ever being anyone's reserve currency. But the concept of digital money is absolutely on its way. This uh, theme for this episode is Hamilton. Uh, the Federal Reserve has been involved in a project for many years called the Hamilton Project. Mm-hmm. 
which effectively is movement to digital currency. Yeah, I told my neighbors the other day, they were talking about cryptocurrency. And I said, you know, the thing is, is that crypto, Bitcoin, all those may have been the first ones to, you know, come out with it. But the government's like, thanks for giving us that idea. We're going to make it, we're going to make it better. And this is what we're going to be using. And we're going to actually make sure it's regulated. (laughs) Oh, exactly. And China has already indicated that they will not allow Bitcoin to become massively used in China. They're they're creating their own cryptocurrency. And so, you know, and remember, cryptocurrency is nothing more than a usage. It is an adaption of blockchain. And and blockchain is a totally different concept when you Mm -hmm. really think about that and where it's going. So we will be moving to more digital money. We will be doing, you know, the whole concept of currency and money will be changing and evolving as we go through this industrial revolution. All the things are happening, which I think have the potential for absolutely exponential change in our world. Yeah. And and again, there's a lot we can talk about with that. That's, yeah, I was saying we need to note an episode just talking about the progression of how, you know, it used to be that you would you know, go to the bank and then money's being delivered to these banks, which I mean, it still happens, but then it switched to, you know, how quickly, you know, a deposit would be in your account. And then now this seamless transferring money and it used to take multiple days. And now it's don't like get me started on checks, instant transfer <laughs> and checks. And now how, you know, the younger generation doesn't even have traditional bank accounts anymore. It's all Venmo and PayPal and all of those outlets. So when I was talking to this particular neighbor and they were kind of freaking out about AI and cryptocurrency and stuff. And I said, you know what, we're already we're already doing Venmo. We're already doing PayPal. And like, well, the government's going to be watching and knowing all our transactions. The government already knows all your transactions. The only transactions they don't necessarily know is you tipped your Sonic girl with a dollar, but Cam didn't. Beep, beep. <laughs> we have been through ebbs and flows with money where it's been centralized, where it's been decentralized. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and do so, a quick explanation of the definition of those two. Oh, so centralized would mean when you have a government that is literally printing the money, that's creating the, the, the a currency. Central a, 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 a cent- a, you know, you've got, you know, in the old theory, uh, where you had a mint that would produce the, the coins and the dollars and things, and that government would establish what the value is. Because, again, to, for something to be a currency, it's got to be a store of value. It's got to be something that can be exchanged for some unit of measurement, some, some store. And that's so when you have a centralized currency. The government is creating that currency. They're establishing the value for that currency. They're exchanging the means of exchange. In a decentralized currency, that would be when uh, you would exchange one scout patch for another scout patch. That would would mean, you know, when, when you're trading a crypto, you know, that's based upon some structure of how they define what the value is, which, you know, I still think is, you know, kind, kind of never, never land and, and, and a huge manipulation. You know, yeah. I personally think, you know, crypto is organized fraud on a biblical level. I don't know why when, when you were talking about decentralized i'm sitting there thinking of like the little kid that trades his like new calculator or new tennis shoes for a peanut butter sandwich because he really wanted that peanut butter sandwich and it's like that is not a fair trade but in his mind he's like i really want that peanut butter sandwich he wants my tennis shoes we'll just switch we'll do it and that is absolutely decentralized currency exchange yep Mm. so a couple other little rapid fire questions so i think this is just showing the extreme i've had people come to me and say I need to have all my money. I need to have a pile of money in cash. I need to be able to just get my hands on it in case something happens. Mm-hmm. Then you have the opposite of like, I need to have a 50 pound bag of pinto beans under my bed because the dollar is going to be worth nothing. And that is what people are going to trade. Now, I've only heard one person talk about pinto beans. Like, do I need to I was going to say, who's, who's talking beans? about pinto beans? Because <laughs> Like, is that, a, have y'all got your pinto beans ready? Nah. Nope. Haven't, haven't checked on the pinto beans, but you start getting into, obviously, conspiracy theorists, you get a uh, survivalist and things of that nature. The, the reality is, and you guys have said this a thousand times because I've, I've heard you say it a thousand times, it's about balance. Mm-hmm. And so should people have some meaningful currency that they're maintaining, you know, whether it be whether it be cash, if heaven forbid you have a, have a physical emergency, a physical crisis, you want to be able to survive for two or three days before you can get to help. So you want to, you may want to have some water, you may want to have some food, you may want to have, you know, batteries and radios and things of that nature. But there's nothing wrong with having emergency reserves. I tend to support having a limited amount of emergency reserves, and that could be in cash. 
it could mean some people want to have uh, some physical silver, mm-hmm. some physical gold, whether it be in bullion or whether it be in... A bunch they, of gold bars in your garage? Well, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> think the gold bars, but there are smaller units of that. Uh, those are important to have, just like it's important to have that emergency reserve fund in your bank, you know, where, where you've got, you know, those short-term cash accounts. So... I don't think there's anything wrong with having a reasonable amount of cash just from a peace of mind standpoint, and uh, as well as you have other things. But again, the vast majority of your assets should be deployed, should be working for you in some manner, whether it be in the things you're producing to help create revenue or whether it be in things that you're investing in that can help you achieve your long-term financial objectives. Do you think in the next 10 years, we will go to cashless? Because you know, with COVID, a lot of places went cashless because of sanitary wise no touchy no touchy and, and i've noticed like I, I was at a venue the other night and it was a completely cashless venue and um although i did hear the beer guy walking around and this guy came up to him and handed him a 20 and he goes oh but we take credit card only and he's like well then i can just take your 20 and give you this beer like i'm not gonna give you change so that was a whole nother story but <laughs> but still like i i think it's now almost that's called a private negotiation private negotiation but i'm almost frustrated to a sense that i've kind of gotten used to i think okay everything is cashless but then i've been caught with no cash and i've gone to a smaller town or i've gone somewhere where a company has chosen not to really accept credit cards because of the fees associated with it so cafe dumond yeah, do you see us going all card in the next 10 years. Before you answer that, though, let me just say, because my opinion is, is is based just strictly on anecdotal evidence, but I don't think we ever do until we get rid of tipping as a thing. Because there are just so many times that I've encountered people that are gig-based or whatever that need tips, and you, you've got to have cash to tip them. And I never do, by the way. And it always <laughs> makes me feel bad. Well, And see, I'm actually going to disagree with you on that point. See, because, I was just teeing you up. Uh, <laughs> but because, I mean, uh, all right, we, we have a thing in our family family that uh, there is a serious addiction to Sonic and uh, and Sonic drinks. And I mean, that used to be a big thing for me as I drive over to Sonic and get, you know, a Diet Coke or an iced tea or whatever. And I was always trying to remember to have that dollar Mm -hmm. to be able to tip the Sonic girl. And there would be times I'd be embarrassed. Oh my gosh, I'm digging through uh, my drawer to see if I can find some quarters Mm -hmm. so I can do that. And now with Sonic, when you place your, they give you the prompt To to add the tip. So they are making it easier for people to do that. And I know y'all talked about the people flipping the iPads at you and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or offering like their Venmo things and yeah. But despite that, I do not believe that we're going completely cashless in the next 10 years. And the reason for it is not so much about technology. It's not so much about preferences, but it's, it's about, in my opinion, a fundamental problem that we have in this country in our rural areas that not have access to broadband technology. Yeah. Are, are you an advocate for government-provided broadband for everybody? Is that something? No, I'm would... not. I'm not talking about government-provided. What I am talking about is, I think, one of the essential roles of government or business. Because I mean, yeah, I, I'm of those people who believe that anything that can be done by government can be done by business better. But uh, we are not yet structured, whereby we have the physical infrastructure to deliver the the level of technology communications right now, and I think, quite frankly, in the next 10 or 15 years, to be able to move to a completely cashless society, just like I don't believe that we're going to have the infrastructure in place to be able to move completely to a non-internal combustion engine and moving away from gasoline products. Mm -hmm. So I think that you can continue to advance. Let me give you an example. Uh, The Orpheum Theater. Uh, an organization that uh, several of us hold near and dear, I think all of us. Indeed. We are in the process of effectively replacing our, our vendor stand that where people stand in line to get soft drinks, beers, whatever, uh, during intermission. We're finding that the average wait in line is 17 minutes, which makes it tough in a 20-minute intermission. Mm-hmm. And so we are going to be going to effectively a structure where, whereby there's going to be a station well, people can walk up there and they can grab their beer, they can grab their wine, and it can be immediate checkout. And they're finding the time for doing these checkouts is like less than one minute. And so, number one, it's great for the Orpheum because it means you can sell more product. Think about how many people that are standing in line to get that beer, to get that wine, that say, oh, I got to go and back to give my up, yeah. And so, my granddaughter and I were in St. Louis this weekend at a, at a baseball game, and they have a store 
inside the stadium that you just walk up and you, gra- you grab whatever you want. You set it down on just a stand. There's scanners on there. You can put three or four things on there. The scanner will immediately uh, tell you how much you owe. You insert your card. You're done. You walk away in about 10 seconds. For, I think those kind of things are going to happen. and We're going to continue to see efficiencies, but I don't believe we're going completely cashless. I just I, Are we on the same page here? Well, I, I don't know what you were going to say. When, when Robin and I were in LAX, uh, there's a store where you give them your credit card when you walk in, and then you just go pick out whatever you want and leave. Yes. And it just charges you. We're on the same page because Amazon bought Whole Foods, and they've got some test stores where you literally pick items up, and somehow there's a scanner, and you just walk out. That's mm-hmm. it. You that's walk amazing. out. Yeah, and those yeah. kind of Crazy. efficiencies, and that's when you start talking about artificial intelligence, and and uh, and when again, what I'm calling the fourth industrial revolution, is that you're going to see more and more efficiencies, more and more use of this advanced technology, more and more blending again of the of the artificial and the biological and everything of that nature as we fuse together all these technologies. Maybe my invention from like third grade is going to come real. I I drew out this fridge and then it's kind of, it was a little bit kind of like smart house, but it was a fridge and you would like have a screen like they've got now, but you could like, it would tell you like your milk's about to expire. tell you how many eggs you had left. And then it'd have a reorder button and like you'd click it and then you'd have your eggs. Oh yeah. You'd have your milk. I think we live in very exciting times. The fact that we're alive during the rise of this fourth industrial revolution is really cool. We get to see these stepping stones. You know, the fact that I'm alive is really cool. It doesn't matter about the rest of it. Like, it's just like, wow, you're still alive, dude? You know, th- th- there's a term that, that we use, actually, a presentation that I've given a few times called Shift Happens. And at the very end of it, we talk about that we are preparing our children today for jobs that have not yet been invented using technologies that haven't been discovered in order to solve problems we have no problems yet. You know, so we are truly are living in exponential times. And I think it's very exciting. But again, so whether our currency is a physical dollar bill or a digital dollar or something else, then the key thing for us is something that, again, that happened 247 years ago. And that was the amazing thing of those founding fathers, you know, including that $10 founding father without mm-hmm. a father, Alexander Hamilton. And, and really, Alexander Hamilton was the father of, of, the of, of our American financial system. 100%. Yep. He's, he's, and, I mean, like, he's my hero. So, and but the fact that our founding fathers created a structure with that constitution that created that, that respect for, for private property, that respect for the rule of law, that free, that structure for free and open elections, and it created the foundation for what we now know to be the greatest economy on the planet. Kudos to you, David, for bringing it full circle. We started with Hamilton and we ended with Hamilton. Oh, we call that a bullseye. I think that is definitely a bullseye. And I already gave mine away about how I'm excited that we're living through this revolution. Just had this conversation last night. Yeah, there's some scary stuff coming up. It's a shift, as you said. It's a change. But you got to ride this storm. You've got to be a part of this. You've got to embrace the new things coming. Yeah, it's normal to be a little skeptical and be cautious with you moving into things. You know, like with cryptocurrency, like don't necessarily get into it. It's it's a little scary. But I think the only way for us to keep moving forward is keep building upon that strong foundation that Hamilton and all of them set for us. And let's just keep seeing where this goes. But there are, as wrapping back up, balance. There's good and bad in all of these things. And let's just, let's see where this ride takes us. Well, I just want to thank you cool kids for, for letting <laughs> this, this nerdy old man on your show today. So this has been a lot of fun. I think it was cool. Very enlightening. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, there's the closing bell. You've made it to the end of yet another episode of the Bullcast Podcast. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more, please feel free to go to your favorite subscription service and sign up to have our podcast beam directly to your favorite listening device every single Thursday at noon. If you'd like to find out more about me, Katie, or Cameron... You can go to our website. That's bullcastpodcast.com. Please leave a comment, suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, or a guest you'd like us to have on. If you like pictures, boy, do we have pictures. Go to Instagram, and our handle is at bullcastpodcast. Also, we have words on Twitter. That handle is also at bullcastpodcast. And we have a Facebook page. That Facebook page is Bullcast The Podcast. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something very important. You may have noticed that we had a guy on here named David Pickler. 
you may have heard us talk about the fact that we work at a place called Pickler Wealth Advisors. And if you would like to find out more about David Pickler, Pickler Wealth Advisors, what we do at Pickler Wealth Advisors and what we can do for you, find out more about our amazing team, please feel free to go to that website. That website is picklerwealthadvisors.com. That's advisors with an O. Not an E. Ladies and gentlemen, we have given you so much to think about, so much to chew on. You have been sated. Your thirst is quenched. You are ready to go forth in the world. So for now, I'm Court. I'm Katie. I'm Cam. And I'm David. And I'm surprised you didn't sing more, Court. Listen, I absolutely fought back the urge to sing several times just based on stuff that he said. I mean, like, dollar dollar bills y'all came up. Uh, it must be the money came up. There were the Hamilton, Hamilton songs. Hamilton oh, my God. Death of the dollars, moaning, death of the moaning, moaning. And we're out. <laughs> <laughs>